listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. So we're beginning something a little bit new this coming Wednesday, and that is a book study. We're going to be looking at this book called Strange New World. Uh, you've heard us talk about this the past few weeks, uh, but I want to let you know, even though this starts this Wednesday, if you have not registered for this class yet, you still can. And so this season of our church's life, you're like, why are we doing this? Um, I, I want to let you know that while there are many things to celebrate in our church, and we talked about some of those things last week. I'm constantly reminded of how good and faithful God is. But I'm also reminded that at some point, we're, we might be a church. I don't know if it's going to be my generation, my son's generation, the generation after that, when we are going to be uh, not as free or not as able to gather and to meet and to discuss the things. And we see that happening in our culture. And so the reason we picked this book is so that we can understand historically how our culture is operating and how to respond to it. But even more so than if you're like, yeah, I'm not really, I'm just gonna live my life. This book is also incredible in the way that it not just addresses our culture and how we can respond to that as individuals or as a church, but how history and how uh, philosophy and how honestly art and how the culture has influenced us today in our parenting. And in the way that you think, you didn't just show up 20, 30, 40, 60, 80 years ago and then just start thinking. You are the product of history. You're the product of philosophy. And so this book helps us to understand that. And so you're invited. It's going to begin this Wednesday, but if you've already registered or if you uh, even registered today or even on Wednesday, just know that Wednesday there's no homework needed. We're just going to get together and talk about the class. If you don't have your book already, you will get it there. Uh, but I want to invite you and encourage you to be part. Um, as we look at the thought process, like we see here, um, well, on my book uh, of, of Marx and of Nietzsche and of Rousseau and romanticism and how that has influenced our culture and Freud. And we'll look at how our culture is functioning and how we can function as believers. The cost is 30 bucks. That covers your book. That covers childcare. It's going to be 630 to eight for about 10 weeks. And so I wanted to invite you to that. Uh, secondly, also again, how we live as exiles, um, in this culture, we're going to be beginning the book of Daniel, not next Sunday, but the Sunday after that. And so if you, you didn't pick up last Sunday's sermon, uh, or if you were in childcare or whatever, I would encourage you to go back and listen, because these three weeks we're building one on top of the next. And even today, there are going to be some questions that I'm hoping will spark some interest, but I'm not going to answer until next week, just because I don't have the time to do that. Uh, and so uh, the Sunday after that, so the very beginning of September, we're going to be beginning the book of Daniel. And so through the fall, we're going to be looking at the first six chapters of Daniel. And so on your seat there, you have some invite cards. And these are so you can begin inviting your neighbors, friends. Uh, my kids invite their friends in the neighborhood, their classmates, their teachers, Invite anybody you can, but this is an easy way to say, hey, we're starting something new. People really enjoy that, uh, that new starting point. It's an easy entry point. So invite your friends. That's there. Or if you don't have any friends, uh, then just hand them out to somebody at the grocery store um, or see me. I'll be your friend. We can be in the same boat. Uh, the other thing, and we'll start passing this out next week. I wanted to um, whet your appetite for these also. But we do like we had uh, for the book of uh, Luke and for the book of Judges, and we may have used it one other time, I think Philippians and student ministry. But we're going to have these, uh, these journals for you as we go through the book of Daniel. And so these will be available starting next week, free of charge to you. Uh, but we, ha we have some green ones uh, with the gold. That's the one that I have because I think it's awesome. Um, but if you're not, or if you're different than me, or not as awesome as me. We also have some black ones, um, and so those are going to be available starting next week, too. And so you can grab those. Uh, if you want to start reading ahead in the book of Daniel, do it. It's awesome. I'm really looking forward to it, and we're going to see how Daniel functions um, as a follower of Christ in Babylon. Uh, lastly, if you're new here to South Point, like Chris said, grab a Connect card. It's there in the seat in front of you. Uh, we have an Intro to South Point class beginning September, and that's going to be the first Sunday of every single month. And so I'll be teaching that class on Sunday mornings from 9 to 10 a.m. And so if you're new to South Point, if you want to hear a little bit more about our church, that's the place for you. Fill that out. 
We'll reach out this week and see if we can answer any questions or get you involved in the mission of God here with us as a body of believers. Cool? All right, let's jump in. So last week, we began by asking this question, if heaven came down to earth, if heaven came down and indwelled your life, what would your life look like? Or if you woke up tomorrow morning and all of your life was the same, you had your family, your school, your work, whatever, your home, but you woke up and you were in heaven, what would your life look like? And here's the question I want us to answer this morning. And so if you were here last week, this might be a little bit easier. If you weren't, that's okay. You can still answer this question. But here's the question that I want to begin with for us, because now you've had 168 hours to think about it. You've had the last seven days. Here's the question for us, though. Where have you noticed the most tension in your life with living in light of heaven? I'm going to ask this a couple different ways, and this is for you to respond, because I heard uh, this question this week, and some folks were like, boom, here or here or here. I got back in my car to go home, and it was right there. Another way of asking this question would be, where are you trying to create an identity for yourself in your life, instead of resting in the identity that Christ has given you? Given you? Or how are you struggling to live out of your identity in Christ? like we saw last week in Ephesians 1, like we just recapped a few minutes ago. So, but the question here, where have you noticed the most tension in your life with living in light of heaven? Anybody want to answer that for us this morning? Relationships. Relationships, yeah. Work. Work. The rest of y'all, man, y'all didn't have to be here this week. Y'all got it last week. Y'all got it, y'all got it figured out. Anywhere else? Medical? Medical? Yeah. Money. money. Mo money, mo problems. I think that's somewhere in Proverbs. I'm not sure. <laughs> but yeah, relationships. That was good. Did you say that, Michael? Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else notice it there? I know for me, I notice a ton of tension. Relationships is uh, like that pretty much is the umbrella of our lives so often. But especially with our kids, that's where I heard a lot of feedback this week is in parenting, whether you've got a, a barely a one-year-old kid or if you've got a, a 30-year-old child. I'm right there more towards the front of that with, a, with an 11-year-old and seven-year-old. But you feel that tension there in your life. So here's the question I want to, the second question I want to ask this morning, and this is for you to respond to as well. And I, I want to set it up in this way because all of us would say we are going toward something. We're, we're trying to create some sort of identity in our lives. But here's the second question. What does culture say is the good life? What does culture say is the good life? If they, were, if they had to define the good life, or if you defined it from their perspective, what would they say? Money. What about money? Financial freedom. Uh, uh, financial freedom, okay. What else? Influence. Influence, yeah. Reputation. Reputation, yeah. What else? What did you say, Will? Gratification. gratification. What kind of gratification? Yeah, immediate. Say right here, Danila. Say it again. Oh, to be healthy. Yeah, cool. Somebody says something back here. Was that you, Will? Power. Okay, yeah. Loving yourself. Success. Success. Yeah. Yeah. My parents gave that one up a long time ago. <laughs> he, said, he said, how your kids look. Or they, how they represent you. Oh, how they represent you, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, for two on that one. Living your truth. Living your truth, yeah. That's good. I think for most of us, if we, if we look at this, if we had to wrap that up into one word, and somebody said it, I think, first, it's this idea of freedom. 
What does the good life look like? Freedom in every area. And we just really define freedom in our financial lives, in our social lives, with our familial lives. Freedom. Man, if I just had freedom, what would that provide me? So uh, I defined freedom as the society would say it in a variety of ways. These ways will be up on the screen. And so I I didn't want to, yeah, if you want to take a picture of this, you can. I'm not going to go through every single one of these. But here's how we see freedom represented all throughout the culture. The first one is sexual expression, which maybe you were thinking that, but you didn't want to say it, right? Freedom, and we see it all in our culture. Individualism. Freedom would lead to moral ambiguity. In other words, you can't tell me what's right or wrong. I'm free. Define your own truth, right? Moral flexibility. Ah, well, there's right or wrong, but who's to say which one is which? Subjectivism. In other words, you are the definer of your truth, or truth can change. Rather than objective, authoritative truth, it can change. Postmodernism. And, and I would say, we've even moved, and not, not I would say, gosh, yeah, as a philosopher, let me speak to this. But Tim, guys like Tim Keller would even say, and other philosophers would say, we've moved beyond postmodernism, and now we are in post-Christendom. So we've even moved beyond this modern society where there is some means of right and wrong. Again, that's why we're looking at the book of Daniel. That's why we're doing a book study called Strange New World because of postmodernism. Now we have experience-based truth instead of factually-based truth. Again, post-Christendom, individual interpretation. There's an alternate reality that you can create for yourself, and we're seeing this proliferated more and more as we even have this augmented reality. So not only this idea that we can have it in our minds, but we can actually create it, and you can step into it. We have uh, over-psychologized excuses. So freedom represents itself as, well, it's just an issue of the mind. I can explain it away. There's a lack of responsibility, and there's a lack of consequences. Now, many would look at uh, millennials and say, yep, that's them. That's exactly them. But who raised them? Okay, the next one (laughs) is, yeah, Uh, can't stand you kids. The way you, uh, there's self-determined design. And lastly, I think what all this leads to, ultimate freedom as our culture would mostly define it. And our culture would say most of these things are actually really good. Lastly, what freedom leads to ultimately is fatalism. Because if you are the creator of your identity, if you set the beginning and the end, if you say, here's what my life is supposed to live up to, if it's all subjective, if there's no higher authority, eventually it's like, well, where's this life going? Well, I don't know. I haven't planned that far yet because I'm not all sufficient. Well, who is? Nobody. So who knows the future? Nobody. You see what I mean? So it becomes fatalistic. Here's what fatalism leads to. This will be if you're on the screen. Go to that next slide right there. Fatalism, when we live in that kind of society, here's the way the society lives. So when we begin with a philosophical standpoint of freedom is my ultimate good, here's how we live. See if, and let's not look at somebody else. Let's look at the things that we just described. Let's look at this past week for us. The tension between living in heaven and living on this earth. Fatalism leads to living for self. It leads to utilitarianism, which means you were only as good as what you produce. It leads to living for the immediate, right? Immediate gratification, immediate satisfaction, I have it right here on my phone. Boom, there it is. You know what I'm talking about? YOLO. I think the kids just came up with that. I'm just kidding. That's like 10 years old. (laughs) Humanism. We can explain away everything since we are the creators of our existence. Next, in fatalism, there is no eternity. There is no purpose. There is no supernatural. It's the grounding and the basis of abortion because there's no purpose for life. Lastly, there's a self-defined existence. Again, we can look at our culture or we can look at ourselves and say, man, how have I spent my time? How have I spent my resources this past week? And here's what I want to do is contrast that with what we saw last week as life in Christ. So here's life in Christ that we saw last week. 
Life with Christ is intimate. It's honest, present, contemplative, dynamic. It has highs and lows. We're able to experience that with Christ. It's joyful. Life with Christ is full and it's fruitful. Life with Christ has been given to us. Lastly, life with Christ is breathed out by him. So if we were to look at these two lists here, which one of these two lists actually looks like freedom? Which one of these actually looks like freedom? Because, friend, ontology is always going to trump autonomy, no matter how hard you try. In other words, how you were created to live is always going to overshadow who you think you are creating yourself to be. Ontology is, here's your purpose. The creator has given you this purpose for living as an individual, as a family, as a body, as a worker, as a neighbor, as a man, as a woman, as a husband, as a child, as a wife, as a grandparent. He has given you this. That's ontology. It's a given identity. And that's always going to trump autonomy. I'm going to define it myself. We were created for the maker's good pleasure. That's how we were created. That's how we're going to experience ultimate freedom. That's where we are going to find joy and relational beauty. And we defined that last week. What would heaven on earth look like? How do we define heaven? Relational beauty. We see it in the Trinity. And as we enter into heaven, that's what we're going to experience. That's what we're looking forward to is relational beauty with the creator. Relational beauty this morning, this week, friends, looks like life with God because we have our life from God. Ontology is always going to trump autonomy. We see this in Genesis chapter 1. Go there with me if you will. This will be up on the screen as well if you want to follow along there. But Genesis chapter 1, we see, we see God creating all of what we know. But notice in verse number 26, some of my favorite verses in the Bible. Notice the pronouns that are used here. And I was reading this this past week with my boys as we were driving down the road. And you're like, yeah, I know this. But, but notice the, the profundity of this community. Because our relationship with God, even though it's, uh, it is relationally beautiful, that's the purpose of our relationship with God. The way that heaven looks today in this world is not just for you and God to have a relationship that's beautiful, but it's for us as a community to have a relationship with each other and us as a community to have a relationship with God that is beautiful. So notice how we are created. This is the ontology piece, verse number 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What's the pronoun that he uses there several times at the very beginning? Then God said, let who? Let me? Let us. We were created in community. We were created by community. We are created for community. Without community, we can't find our purpose. When it's just, let me create this myself, we don't understand why we are supposed to exist. We were created by the Trinity. We were created to be connected. If you flip over and look at chapter two and verse number seven, he goes on, he actually kind of retells the story. Verse number, uh, sorry, let me look at chapter uh, one. He says in verse number 31, he says, and this is uh, Abraham, uh, sorry, Moses writing. He says, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was what? Very good. How was community? It was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. But if you look down at chapter two and verse number seven, 
Notice then. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. So what transforms this lump of clay into life? What transforms this lump of clay into life? The breath of God. This word here in the Hebrew is actually ruach. Everybody say ruach. Yeah, so you can either translate that breath or you can translate it spirit or you can translate it presence. How close did God have to get to breathe on the, on the ground, on the dust? If you want to move dust on the ground, how close do you have to get? Real close. So God gets down and he becomes intimate. He creates a community there by getting close to the dust and he breathes his life. It says that we're created in the image of God. What gives us the image of God? Because we have a nose? Because we have two eyes? Because some of us have hair? Like arms? What gives us the image of God? It's the spirit and the breath of God. So when we look at someone else, man, they're created in, in the image of God. That person might be created in the image of God, but I'm not sure. But it's a little lesser of the image of God. We see these beautiful people. That's the image of God. Amen. No, God had to give part of himself. Even here, we see the character and nature, the sacrificial nature of God getting down and giving of himself so that we can be made in his presence. You see, brother and sister, he desires to be close to us. He desires to be close to us. That's how we're going to spend all of eternity. And we can look forward to that. We know that we're going to be in the presence of God, but he desires to be close to us even today because that's how we were created. And so today in this already not yet, know that we were created to be in the presence of God. So here's what I want to consider. So this series is called In McDonough As It Is In Heaven. So as I was thinking about life in McDonough, for many of us, and maybe you could add a few more things to this list, but here's what life consists of in McDonough. Work, parenting, entertainment, spiritual disciplines. We looked at those last week. Money, time, marriage, evangelism, food, community, rest, play, conversations, your house, going on vacation, when you travel, your addictions, the music that you listen to, your dreams, your hopes, your fears, your goals, your past, your thought life, your emotional health, your education, sitting in traffic, <laughs> your social media, your view on politics. When we think about life in McDonough, man, it encapsulates a whole lot of who we are. But we have to look at these from heaven's perspective. Because last week we looked at, here's my life from heaven's perspective. Okay, so how should my life look in McDonough? In each one of these categories, we have to answer the question, if we were in heaven, how would each one of these look? And for some of you, as you look at this list, you're like, man, if I was in heaven, I would be much more appreciated at work. Yeah. If I was in heaven, my parenting would look like obedient children. If I was in heaven, they would have had a few more episodes of that series that I could keep binging under entertainment. If I was in heaven, I'd have more money. I'd have more time. If I was in heaven, uh, <laughs> I'd be married. Married. I'd be married. Some of y'all are like, I would not be married. Uh, I'd be married to somebody different. If I was in heaven, I could eat all the food I wanted to and it wouldn't stay on me. If I was in heaven, I'd be able to sleep in more, be able to go to sleep, I'd be able to sleep at all. If I was in heaven, I'd have a bigger house. If I was in heaven, my vacation would be a whole lot better. If I was in heaven, I wouldn't have to deal with my addictions. If I was in heaven, I wouldn't have to sit in traffic. If I was in heaven, man, I would get more likes on my social media. If I was in heaven, my entire past would be different. I wouldn't be haunted by that. If I was in heaven, I wouldn't have to worry about this jacked up thought life. If I was in heaven, my candidate would always win. 
right? Is that where your mind goes? When you think, man, if I was in heaven, all of my dreams would come true. The way that I live my life would look a whole lot better for me. You know why that is? Because when I am the source of my life, I simultaneously need something else to provide satisfaction and sufficiency for my happiness. When I am the source of my life, I'll say that again, and I'm gonna let this sit for a moment. When I am the source of my life, I simultaneously need something or someone else to be fulfilled or to be satisfied. Here's what I mean. If I am the source of my life, what I need from work is recognition from my boss. Because without recognition from my boss, my work is pointless. If I am the source of my life, I parent in a way that my children are going to obey because I don't need to just parent out of something. I need to parent for something. And if my children are not obedient to me, then I feel like a failure. Anybody there? If my children obey, then I'm fulfilled. If I'm the source of my life, I can look at my marriage And being married is not an end in and of itself, but being married is a means to an end. I need to be gratified. I need to be happy. I need my spouse to fulfill me. If I am the source of my life, I'm running back to myself and I realize that I am empty and that I am dry and that I need something else. So every single one of these elements of our lives, I'm looking to for fulfillment or for satisfaction if I am the source of my life. But think about it from heaven's perspective. In heaven, however, in heaven, I have everything I need in the presence of Christ. In heaven, I have everything I need in the presence of Christ. Just sit in that for a second. If you had everything you needed in the presence of Christ, what would that give you? You can tell me. Peace, shalom. Say it again. Joy, freedom. If you had everything you needed in the presence of Christ, two questions. First, what does that give you? I would say it gives you freedom. Because now you're not living for something, you're living from something. You're not living for an identity, but you're living from an identity. Secondly, if you had the presence of Christ, if you had everything that you needed in the presence of Christ, secondly, how then do you live? And I would argue, friend, that then you're able to live in love. You're able to live for the sake of others. You're able to live in true community because now you're not running to your kids in hopes that they're gonna provide you with something or fulfill you in some way. You're not going to a job hoping that you can earn an identity or earn more money or earn respect, but you're able to go to a job and work freely and do the the best that you can do. And if it's not good enough for somebody else, man, I mean, I did the best I could. This person is not responsible for my identity. My identity is found in Christ and in him alone. We see the difference here? And we, we live between this tension of living for the identity that we get from others and living from the presence of Christ. Go to 1 John chapter 4. I want to I tease out this idea of identity just a little bit and see how we get this identity um, in community 
from Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 4. He says this in verse number 7. John writes this. And I want us to see how, how Christ has created this relational beauty. It's afforded us by the sacrifice of Jesus. 1 John chapter 4, and this will be up on the screen, I believe. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. We're created in community for the sake of community. Let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, he took our sin for us and he gave us his life. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. For no one has seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Verse 13, notice the Trinity here. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, in other words, completed with us, so that, we have, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he cannot, uh, for he who does not love his brother whom he cannot see cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Why do we love the brethren? Why do we love others around us? Because Jesus Christ was sent as our perfect older, older brother to live for us, to die for us, to give himself for us. So that when heaven looks at you, you can be seen as loved rather than a rebel. We were right down the road this past week and the boys were kind of bickering in the back. Um, Axel was getting at Kingston and Kingston was probably responding and there's probably about to be some punches thrown. And the ride to school is not very long. So it was getting heated quickly. And I asked one of the boys, I don't remember which one. I said, how are you treating your brother right now? And he told me. I said, so how are you seeing your brother? And he's like, oh, I'm seeing him as being less than me. Or I'm not treat, I'm, I'm seeing, I'm hating him right now. I'm responding to him with anger. I'm not seeing him as very smart or worth a whole lot. And I said this past week in Ephesians chapter one, we saw, and I was, I was talking to Acts about this. I said, we saw our identity in light of God. I said, how does heaven see your brother? He said, well, he sees him as chosen. He sees him as forgiven. I said, how are you seeing your brother? He said, not like heaven. I said, that's right, buddy. So how does heaven see each one of us? And how do we see each one of us? We must have the perspective of heaven. That's how community happens. But we have to go to heaven to be able to see each other. We can't just say, hey, love, love, love. We have to say, how does heaven love us? Sacrificially, with humility. Ephesians chapter two, verse number 13. It says this, this will be up on the screen. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by what? The blood of Christ. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. 
So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, rebels, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place by God, for God, by the Spirit. So how do we grow in community? How do we begin to look more like Jesus? Friend, we must look at Jesus until we begin to look like Jesus. What did Jesus do? He gave of himself. How do we engage in community? We give of ourselves. Sanctification can only happen in community. That word sanctification, holiness, being set apart. One of those first words that we see there in Ephesians chapter one, he says that you are holy. How does that holiness happen? Is it personal holiness? It can't happen that way. Because God being holy is what? He's the Trinity. Your holiness must happen in community. All of us, we're, we're defected. We're messed up right? We, we know that. We see that about ourselves. We feel that. We're products of the curse. We're products of the fall, products of our sin. And maybe at some point this past week, uh, you're like me, and you feel like you were missed by someone else. Maybe like me, you felt inadequate at your job, in your home, with your parenting, Maybe at some point this past week, like me, you felt insufficient or you felt unloved or you felt alone. That's because you were created for community. And we can't look toward other defected people to satisfy our need of community and say, you know what? If I can fix myself just enough, I won't be defected anymore, and now they'll love me. Those are lies of the enemy. The enemy twists your defectiveness, and he says, you are unworthy of community. Because you're messed up, because you are in sin, because of your nature, because of who you are, you are unworthy of community. And so you feel missed. You feel unloved. But friend, can I tell you, even though you're defected, you can't fix yourself enough to be part of community. You have been pursued by a loving and a gracious and a holy God who does not pursue you because you are so beautiful or beyond flaw or because of the amount of money that you have, he pursues you even though you're kind of messed up looking. Your soul, your spirit, your actions, your thought process. He pursues you because you were created in his image. Because he breathed out of himself, his presence. He pursues you that's the beauty of community with Christ. We all come in here today and we're all broken. We're all messed up. And so for all of us, we run to the cross and we point each other to Jesus. Your worth and your significance is not what you can earn in and of yourself, but it's what's been granted to you by Jesus Christ. Amen? And we saw that last week in Ephesians chapter one. If you actually go back to Ephesians chapter one, notice what it says. He doesn't just grant you your identity for the sake of yourself. He grants you that identity for the sake of community because notice in Ephesians chapter one and verse number three, verses three and four says this, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with what? Every spiritual blessing. How many spiritual blessings? Every of them. In the heavenly places. When did he bless us with all those? In the future? In the past. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be, not that you should be, 
that we should be holy and blameless before him. I saw this past week where LeBron James signed a contract for $97.1 million for the next two years with the Lakers. Praise God I should have practiced basketball more. <laughs> what would you do with $97 million? Anybody, what would you do with $97 million? I wasn't planning on stopping here, but I will. Quit working. Yeah. Buy a house. A nice one. Build a school. What else? That's it? College debt. College debt. Can I get a what, what? <laughs> Buy me a house. Thank you, Jessica. Bless you, child. Now we can just pray and go home. And we can imagine what we would do with $97 million. It wouldn't take us long to spend that, even after taxes. And in California, they're really steep. It wouldn't take us long. But you know what's even better than having $97 million? is having every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Amen? That is yours. But how often do we sit and imagine, man, if I had every single spiritual blessing, what could I do? No, we think, if I had obedient children, what could I do? If I had children that looked well, what would that give me? If my boss appreciated me, how much more money could I make? If I had a better house, if I had less debt, what could I do then? What fills our minds? Because Paul says, set your mind on the things above. But here's the beautiful thing, is that each one of these spiritual blessings is not simply for you alone. Who is Paul writing to here? He's not writing to individuals. He's writing to the body of believers. He's writing to the gathered church. And he says, every single spiritual blessing and resource is not just yours, it's not just for you, but it's for the sake of each other. And I would argue, friend, that every resource, every gift, every fruit is meant to be developed in community. It's for the sake of someone else. Galatians chapter 5, we know this passage. Galatians chapter 5 and verse number 13, it begins here. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Then he picks up in verse number 19 and he says this. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't miss the kingdom of God. He's saying, if you are doing these things, you are not part of the kingdom because the kingdom of God is not something that's just going to come. The kingdom of God is here. What did Jesus say in Mark chapter one and verse number 15? He says, repent and believe because the kingdom of God has been brought here. Paul keeps going. He says, but the fruit of the spirit, real quick, stop me when you cannot express these or develop these in community. Love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I got you, self-control. Let me ask you this, friend. When do you not express self-control? When you are by yourself or with someone else? I would say by yourself, maybe in your car, but when who else is around? People who don't deserve a driver's license. When you are in community with these other nincompoops, you know? Like, that's where you're like, man, I am struggling with self-control right now. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another, but for the sake of of someone else. The fruit of the Spirit, by the way, is not for the future kingdom of God. 
It's the kingdom of God today on display. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 7. It says, now these are, there are a variety of gifts. I'm not going to go into all the gifts of the Spirit, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Notice, to each, there's the individual, is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what? For your good? For the common good. Every fruit, resource, gift is for the sake of someone else. And what comes right after 1 Corinthians chapter 12? Chapter 13. Did I say before or after? Gotcha. Good job, Jake. What comes after 1 Corinthians chapter 12? Chapter, which is the chapter about what? Love. These gifts are for the sake of loving each other. That's what kingdom-minded, heavenly-minded community looks like. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, it says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Notice the unity here. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And then he keeps going in verse number 16. He says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, who did what? Who gave himself for us from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. If heaven came down to McDonough and lived in your life, it lived in our lives, it would be expressing itself in sacrificial, humbling Peace-finding love. In order to look more and more like Christ, we must keep looking toward Christ. Lastly, Romans chapter 12. Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Set your mind on things above, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. He keeps going. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. We are created in community. We are created by community. Brother and sister, we are created for community. Once we look to heaven, it is going to wreck the way that we look at earth. It's going to transform in a really good way the way that we go to work, the way that we parent, the way that we look at our spouse, the way that we look at our brother or our sister, the way that we look at that person in our life group, we're going to be connected, not just here on Sunday morning showing up. Hey, thanks for preaching. Thanks for singing. But we're going to be involved in a life group, on a serve team, in a DNA group. We're going to be showing up for the sake of others. We often use others to accomplish our goals, our dreams, and our kingdom. That's how we often use others. But can I invite you this morning, friend? The call is not into a good life or a better life or something more ideal. The invitation by Christ is into a better kingdom. It's into a better way of living. 
And I would say this, what is the dream of your life? What do you spend your time focusing on? Because a dream for most of us is a vision of what life would be like without any weakness, right? If you said, man, here's the dream of my life. But once you embrace those weaknesses, you're able to engage with others who are also broken. You're able to rely on the Father who is strong. And your areas of brokenness may just be the greatest areas of contribution to someone else. Because as, you, as we look around the room, we're all broken. Surprise. <laughs> we're all broken. And can I tell you that I'm happy to go through this life with y'all. I love each one of y'all. We're all broken together. And we all come to the foot of the cross each and every week, throughout the week, to be reminded that we have a Savior who is strong, who is loving, who is gracious, who is merciful, who has called us brother and friend. In him we have hope. And so I would invite you this morning into a better kingdom, and I would invite you to surrender your kingdom. I would invite you to surrender your preferences. I would invite you to surrender your time and your resources and your heart and your goals and your dreams and your fears and your past and your parenting. I would invite you to surrender all of those things. Jesus Christ has demonstrated his love on the cross. Amen? Yeah. May that pervade us as a community.